invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 14 as we continue through this book and come to the second chapter dealing with Samson. Before we hear God's word from Judges 14, let us ask once again for our Father's help. Father, we do ask that now you would do a more miraculous work than what we'll read about in Judges 14, that you would cause the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the lame to leap, and the dead to live in Christ. Would your spirit come upon us, indwell us, and do this mighty work within us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Judges chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. 
Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town, and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Since the word of the Lord. In Quinn family heritage, there is a riddle that is passed down from eldest son to eldest son. It's called the riddle of the old man on the train. So periodically during our Quinn family reunions, my grandfather would tell us the riddle again as we all gathered around him and we would try to guess the answer. As far as I know, no one has ever successfully guessed the answer to this riddle. And so the only way the answer has survived is by passing it down to the eldest son, who then will pass it down to his eldest son. And alas, my father was the third-born son, and so I will never know the answer to this riddle. And honestly... I don't even remember the riddle at this point. Riddles can be fun. One of my favorite chapters in Tolkien's The Hobbit is Riddles in the Dark, where Gollum and Bilbo exchange a series of riddles to determine whether Gollum is going to show Bilbo the way out of the mountain or whether Gollum is going to eat Bilbo. Riddles can also be frustrating. Because they are designed to conceal as much as they are to reveal. So when you tell a riddle, you are not telling as much as you are telling. They intentionally lead you in a misleading way. So you might say that riddles are veiled communications. And so if you are to unveil them, you will need to think carefully and creatively. And Judges 14 in some ways requires this kind of thinking because it's all about riddles and secrets and what people don't know. It is about telling and not telling, revealing and concealing. You know this because some form of the verb to tell is 14 times used in this chapter. And more often than not, it's about what is not being told. 
So when Samson kills the lion, you see in verse 6, he does not tell his parents what he's done. When he scrapes honey from the carcass, he does not tell his parents where the honey came from. When he tells the riddle to the 30 Philistines, he does not tell them, his wife or his parents, the answer. And when he does eventually tell his wife, she betrays him by telling the Philistines. So this story is all about telling and not telling. Yet Samson is not the chief riddler in this story. He's not the main one telling and not telling. Yes, he knows more than anyone else in the chapter, but he does not know everything. The great riddler who reveals and conceals is God. For when Samson sees a Philistine woman and wants her to be his wife, which is what is going to precipitate all of the events that happen not only in chapter 14, but also in chapter 15. We are told his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, that is the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So no one but God and the reader fully knows what God is doing in these chapters. He is telling them some things, but he is not telling them everything. And so everything in these chapters is a kind of riddle. But thankfully, God desires you and I to know the answer, which is why he had Samson's story written down and gave us his spirit of truth in order to lead us into all truths. So I'm going to deal with what I'm calling three gospel riddles in this chapter. For as always, these stories and judges are ultimately intended to lead you to better understand the story of Jesus Christ. And the three riddles are the riddle of life out of death, the riddle of the spirit, and the riddle of sin and sovereignty. So the first riddle is the riddle of life out of death. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you remember in chapter 13 how the angel of the Lord appears to a man from the tribe of Dan named Manoah and his wife to tell them that his barren wife is now going to conceive and bear a son who will begin to save Israel from the Philistines. The Lord doesn't tell anyone else in Israel that this Savior has been born. The Savior is God's secret, and only the parents know. The chapter ends then with the good news that Manoah's wife did indeed conceive and bear a son, and she names him Samson, which means little son, S-U-N. He is a little light that has come into the world. We're then further encouraged because the author tells us at the end of the chapter, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah 
and Eshtaol. And we're not told anything about Samson's childhood other than the fact that he grew in the Lord's favor and that the Spirit was with him. Now, the word for to stir means to agitate. So the, the Lord is not letting Samson be still and content, which prepares us for the somewhat restless wandering man that we're going to meet in chapter 14 and the subsequent chapters. Now, the only other place in the Bible where we find a description like this of a child is in Luke's gospel account. For when John the Baptist is born, Luke tells us, and the child grew and became strong in the spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. In many ways, I think Luke writes in a way of John's birth that's supposed to remind you of Samson, these two honey-eating wilderness men. But this is also reminiscent of Luke's description of Jesus. For Luke writes, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As he grew, he found favor or blessing from the Lord. And like with John the Baptist, really the next we hear about Jesus is him beginning his ministry. He is baptized by John, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and then the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. So if you know about John the Baptist and Jesus, then as you come back and read this story of Samson, you are probably going to expect some pretty wonderful things as you come to chapter 14. You might expect Samson to be going down to Israel to call the Israelites to repentance like John or going to announce that he is their savior like Jesus. Yet what you actually find is that Samson goes to a Philistine town. He sees a Philistine woman and he demands to marry her. The Hebrew literally says that he came back to his parents and said, Woman, I found in Philistia. He's pretty excited. But his parents are understandably Paul. Their son is persistent, and they go with Samson to Timnah to arrange this marriage. So right away, after the announcement of this Savior, we see that the one sent to save Israel from the Philistines is actually preparing to marry a Philistine. But at some point in the journey, Samson is separated from his parents, and when he is alone, a roaring lion attacks him. Then the Spirit of the Lord, for the first of four times, rushes upon Samson, and Samson tears the lion apart with his bare hands as if it was just a baby goat. Apparently, baby goats aren't that hard to tear apart. Never tried it. But Samson doesn't tell anyone about this. So a few days Later, he returns, and he wants to stop by and just look at the, the lion that he had killed, maybe just again feel pretty impressed by his own accomplishment. But what he finds is surprising. 
Yes, there is the dead lion, but inside the dead lion is a swarm of bees who are making honey. Now, as all of you beekeepers know, you don't usually find bees making their honey in a rotting carcass. You would expect to find flies and maggots, but not honey-making bees. So clearly, this is the Lord communicating to Samson. It's as if God is speaking to Samson in a kind of visual riddle. And what is he telling Samson? Well, I think he's reminding Samson what he has called him to do. God's and Israel's enemies at times are likened to roaring lions. In Jeremiah chapter 4, when God warns Judah that if they don't turn in repentance, they are going to be oppressed. And that mighty nation that's going to come from the north, the Babylonians, is described as a lion. And so first, the lion signifies the Philistines. And God is reminding Samson, your mission is not to marry Philistines, it is to defeat them. I believe he's also encouraging Samson that just as he empowered him to tear this lion apart, he is going to protect Samson even if he's all alone and no one else in Israel is siding with him and give him the power to tear apart the Philistines. For you'll notice with Samson, unlike any of the other judges, all of the other judges go out and they assemble armies to fight. Samson is a savior who from beginning to end is fighting alone. But there's more. For again, there is no way that bees would ever naturally make honey in a lion carcass. And so clearly this is a supernaturally arranged scene. And if the lion signifies the Philistines, then it seems that the bees would signify Israel. And this is confirmed by the fact that the Hebrew word used to describe the bees, is not the usual word for swarm. It's the word for community, which is often applied in the Old Testament to describe Israel as the community of faith. You probably remember that Canaan, the promised land, has been described as a, a land of milk and honey. Honey was viewed as not only sweet to the taste, but life-giving to the body. So when later on, Saul's son Jonathan is faint with hunger and he eats some honey, it, it says his eyes became bright, meaning his life and strength were restored. So I believe the message of the live bees and the dead lion is threefold. First, it is depicting Israel's current state as they live oppressed by the Philistines. But second, it declares hope that God's covenant community has not been destroyed and that the covenant blessings can still be obtained. But third, I believe that it foreshadows that this covenant life and blessing will only come out of death. Life will require death. And there's our riddle. How can death be the path to life? 
Now, the obvious death will be, well, the Philistines are going to have to die. The enemies will have to be defeated. And that is true. But might this scene also foreshadow the death of the one sent to deliver them? For when Jacob blesses Judah, he foresees that eternal kingship will come out of the tribe of Judah, and Judah is likened to a lion's cub. So in the book of Revelation, when John the Apostle has this heavenly vision, one of the elders points to Jesus and says to John, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. But how did this Jesus, this lion king, conquer? And if you know the gospel, you know the answer is that this lion conquered, not by tearing apart, but by being torn apart. The great enemy of mankind, the devil, who Peter describes as a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5, was only defeated when another lion came down to day came to lay down his life on a cross and be torn apart as if he were just a young lamb. A lot of times we hear stories of heroes and super strength, and we want to come and enter into that story as that super strong hero. We want to be a Samson. Yet when Jesus entered into our story, he came as a lion, yes, but as the one that got torn part. And if you know how Samson's story ends, then you know that his greatest victory over the Philistines, when 3,000 Philistines are going to be killed at once, not just 30 Philistines like in our chapter, but 3,000, that victory is going to cost him his life. And so one of the great riddles of the gospel is that eternal life is only possible coming out of death. To save you from the roaring lions of sin, Satan, the kingdom of darkness, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, had to give his life and death upon the cross. The sweetness of salvation could only come from the bitterness of death. To taste the sweet covenant blessings, the Savior had to taste the sour cup of wrath. And by faith in Christ... If you want to live with Christ, you will have to die with Christ. For Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a riddle. How do you lose your life? By saving it. How do you save your life? By losing it. And the gospel gives you the answer. You must die with Christ to sin by faith in order to live with him to righteousness. And so Paul asks, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The gospel is about life out of death. But the second 
gospel riddle we find in this chapter is the riddle of the Spirit. Now, we've heard before in Judges of the Spirit coming upon the Deliverer. The Spirit was upon the first Deliverer, Othniel. The Spirit clothed Gideon. The Spirit was even upon Jephthah. But with Samson, we'll not read of the Spirit coming upon him once, but four times, twice in our chapter alone. The Spirit's activity, therefore, is acknowledged and highlighted more with Samson than with any other judge. And the Spirit is not so much the riddle as he is the answer to the riddle. For as you read the Bible, you realize that salvation is, humanly speaking, an impossible reality. As Jesus preaches, his disciples get this, and they even ask him, who then can be saved? And Jesus acknowledges, it is impossible with man. For sin has made us all spiritually blind, deaf, dumb, and lame. It has made us as good as dead. How then can the spiritually blind possibly see the glory of Christ, no matter how many times you put it in front of them? How can they hear of the glory of Christ, no matter how many times you preach? How can they begin to speak and sing the glory of Christ? How can they leap for joy in Christ? How can they respond to the gospel when they are as good as dead? For that would require a far greater power than you, if you were to ask, how could a man possibly tear a lion apart with his bare hands or kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey or rip doors off of city gates, all of which we will hear about Samson doing in the coming weeks. Samson's feats of physical strength, they're impressive, and they reveal great power. They even work a kind of deliverance, but they don't actually save any of the Israelites from their sin. And they are far from the greatest miracles that you read about in the Bible. Yet they are important because they point to the power that you and I need to be saved. For Samson was not able to kill lions or Philistines by his own strength. In fact, I'm, I'm not convinced that Samson was very impressive to look at. If you've seen depiction of Samson, they, they probably are of a pretty big, muscly, bulky dude. And yet you notice that people who know Samson are always wondering, where does this guy's strength come from? It was not, hey, this guy obviously is committed to powerlifting and CrossFit every morning. I, I can see it's still impressive, but I can see how he could do it. They all want to know, where does this strength come from? Because it obviously doesn't come from Samson. Samson probably looked like me. And none of you would think, oh, now there's a physical specimen. No man could naturally do what Samson did. And the answer to the riddle is that Samson didn't have the power of a man. He had the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this way, we see what Jesus tells his disciples about salvation. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
how could such mighty enemies as sin, Satan, suffering, the world, and death be overcome? By the power of God's Spirit. And Christian, the good news is that you have the very same Spirit. You may think, yes, well, I, I don't have the Spirit like Samson had him. I can't rip lions apart or tear doors off of city gates. You're right. You don't have the Holy Spirit as Samson had him. You have something greater. Not a greater spirit, but a greater measure and permanence of the spirit. Spirit doesn't have to rush upon you. The spirit is always dwelling within you, ready to move into action whenever you need him. And he is with you, not as the spirit of Samson. He is with you as the spirit of the risen, conquering king, Jesus Christ. The same spirit by whom Jesus did everything he was called to do on earth. And the works that Jesus did were way more impressive than what Samson did. Do you know what's way more impressive than killing lions and Philistines? Obeying God at every single step. That would have been a whole lot greater for Samson than just doing impressive physical acts. Obedience is far more difficult and far better than tearing lions apart. And that's what our Lord and Savior did for us, even obeying to the point of death. And so you have the spirit of Christ within you, the spirit who makes old people new creations, who gives saving faith, who sanctifies and cleanses from sin, who fights against sinful desires, who guards you from the devil, who empowers you to resist temptation, who sustains you in suffering. That is all far harder and greater than what Samson did. The greatest works of the Spirit are to regenerate and renew, to make the blind see, to make the deaf hear, to make the dumb speak, to make the lame leap, and to make the dead live. You have a greater power to fight greater enemies than Samson. Samson experienced the Spirit more than any other judge. But Jesus Christ is the only one who received the Spirit in full measure, and he joyfully gives the fullness of that Spirit to all of his children. And so when Isaiah foresaw that day, our day, he said, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And it is by this power that you may believe the gospel, that you may be cleansed and forgiven of all your sin, that you may resist the roaring of the devil, endure the raging of the nations, and put to death the sin that would rule over you, walking in obedience to your God. So depend upon that same Holy Spirit. And do not doubt that he is with you, that he is for you, and that he will never leave you. 
At some point, we'll see in a few weeks that the Spirit will leave Samson. The promise for those in Jesus Christ is he will never leave you. This is the riddle of the Spirit. The third and final riddle is the riddle of sin and sovereignty. Now, as I've had to do repeatedly through judges, in the interest of full disclosure, want you to be aware there are faithful pastors and theologians who interpret virtually everything Samson does in a different light than I do. They see it all as possible, as, as righteous, as good, and they all think that most of the commentators are just too hard on poor Samson, and that might be true. Now, I've listened carefully to their arguments who see Samson as righteous in all of his actions, but I simply remain unconvinced. As I said last week, Samson does clearly reveal Christ to us more than any other judge. But I also believe that he more clearly reveals to us Israel and our sin and our need for a Savior more than any other judge. So what we have seen and continue to see in Judges is not God saving his people through perfect saviors. What we have seen is God sovereignly work salvation through sinners and their sin and all the time pointing us to a future perfect saving. And this helps us contemplate yet another gospel riddle, which is the relationship between God's total sovereignty and the reality and existence of sin. So let's look at the sin in this text, beginning with Samson's. God has sent Samson to be a savior of Israel. And chapter 13 does raise our expectations quite high. Yet, as I said, when we finally meet Samson, we are severely disappointed. Because Samson sees a Philistine woman and he demands to marry her. And why is that problematic? Because she is a foreign woman. And not just any foreign woman. She is a Philistine who right now are the enemies and oppressors of Israel. Now it is true that the Philistines were not native Canaanites, and that they were not explicitly listed among the peoples that God expressly said, don't marry them. But it's not like that was an exhaustive list. And clearly the Philistines are considered in Judges to be among the peoples that Israel is to separate from and conquer. And you have to remember that the problem with foreign women in God's eyes was never, well, here's a few impure ethnicities that I don't want you mixing with. The problem was always, if you marry any other people, they will be following another God, and they will lead you into worship of idols. So that was true of every other people outside of Israel, including the Philistines. The whole point is Israel is not to marry outside the covenant. It's a covenant issue, not an ethnic issue. And Samson's parents clearly understand this, which is why they refer to the Philistines in this case as uncircumcised. Because what's the sign and seal of the covenant? Circumcision. This is also clear from the fact that the Israelites could marry non-Israelites 
who became spiritual Israelites, who took Israel's God as their God. The two great examples, Rahab from Jericho, Ruth from Moab. So, has Samson just found a, a righteous Philistine? No. Because you'll notice that when Samson's wife presses him for the answer to the riddle, she complains saying, you have put a riddle to my people. That's the Philistines. This is no Ruth who says, your people are my people, your God is my God. So I do not buy those who say, well, she was right in Samson's eyes because Samson talked to her and he saw, oh, here is finally someone who wants to follow the true God. You'd have to read between a lot of lines to come to that conclusion. Point, I believe, is that Samson is pursuing a foreign woman, which symbolizes what Israel has been doing this whole time, pursuing foreign gods. And so the horrifying reality is that the Savior God sent to be separated unto God in holiness and save Israel from the Philistines is now sinning against God by trying to marry a Philistine. Samson also possibly sins in two other ways in this chapter, although these are less clear. The first is that he eats honey out of the lion's carcass and gives some to his parents. Now remember from chapter 13, Samson is a Nazarite. And one of the Nazarite vows is you don't go near dead bodies. And he's not supposed to eat anything unclean. Again, it is true that Israelites were allowed to use the bodies of animals they killed, whether they were clean or unclean. And it is true that honey was a clean food. But for something clean to touch what is unclean now makes it unclean. And the Nazarites had stricter regulations. So I think it's right to argue Samson should not have eaten this honey, which would explain why he doesn't tell his parents where it came from. And second, Samson hosts a feast in verse 10. And it's not just any feast. The word is for a feast that's all about drinking wine. It's a college kegger. And again, as a Nazarite, Samson was forbidden from drinking anything that came from grapes. And again, I will admit, it doesn't explicitly say that Samson drank at the party. So maybe he was the designated driver at this kegger, but again, doesn't seem to say so. And so we now have Samson breaking all of his Nazarite vows except one, and we're only in chapter 14. So he's not off to a good start. You also see the sins of the Philistines as they threaten Samson's wife, threatening to burn her and her family if she doesn't get the answer for them. You see the sin of the woman who betrays Samson after manipulating and compelling him to tell her the answer. And the Philistines even mock Samson for this. For you notice that they finally answer in the form of questions. Instead of just saying the answer is honey in lion, they say, well, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? Well, they're at 
a wedding feast. So probably the, the little dig here is, well, the love between a husband and wife should be sweeter than honey and stronger than a lion. And yet it's your wife who told us the answer. He calls her a heifer. It's probably not a really nice thing to say, but I'm told that it was nicer to call women a heifer in those days than it would be today. But guys still wouldn't recommend it. So there is a lot of sin taking place in this chapter. And yet God is sovereignly overruling it all to save his people. For look again at verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. It referring to this whole circumstance. For he, that is the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. The Philistines may have ruled over Israel. Clearly, the Lord is ruling over the Philistines and Israel and everything that's going to take place in this story. And even though Samson was seeking sin, God was seeking salvation through that sin. The good news is that when we will not turn from sin to God, God will often even use our sin to turn us back to God. So here are two lessons we learn about this relationship between sin on one hand and God's sovereignty on the other. First, we learn that God's sovereignty is our only hope for salvation from our sin. If we in any way try to deal with this riddle by lessening God's sovereignty and just say, well, he just limits himself or there's certain spheres of life he just doesn't deal with, then we have gotten rid of the whole possibility of salvation. So don't try to solve this riddle by saying God isn't totally sovereign. That goes against the Bible and we're all doomed. His sovereignty is our only hope. For as I said last time, salvation is not the result of our willingness to be saved. Salvation is the result of God's willingness to save us. And so the only reason that we can be separated from sin is because God's going to cause the separation. Think again of Genesis 3 in the fall. The woman listens to and sides with the serpent. She makes an ally of her enemy. The one she should be fleeing from, in one sense, she's going to marry. She's going to unite with. But salvation is possible because God says he's going to create enmity, hostility between the woman and the serpent. She would love sin, Satan, and the world, but God says, I'm going to create hostility there and separate you. He will not allow the union to take place. In the same way, Samson begins by pursuing a Philistine in love, but by the end of the story, he's killing 30 Philistines in hot anger. That love affair has turned into hostility. And God doesn't let the union ultimately take place. Samson will never consummate this marriage. He will not be wedded to the Philistine. Christian, in the same way, God lovingly and mercifully has separated you from your sin when you would have lovingly pursued it and united yourself to it. It's God's sovereignty that saved you from your sin. 
God held you back when you would have wedded yourself to destruction. And so in salvation, God separates you into himself by first separating you from your sin. He turns your love of sin into hatred of sin. But second, we learn that God's sovereignty not only saves us from sin, but it actually has used our sin to accomplish that salvation. In other words, sin is always aimed in opposition to God. And God is always working and aiming in opposition to sin, but God's sovereignty is so great and so good that even the sin that opposes him must ultimately serve him. Now, God does not sin. He does not delight in sin. He does not compel anyone to sin. He does not even tempt anyone to sin. But even sin, which opposes God's will, cannot escape God's will. Sin is God's unwilling servant, which is ultimately going to serve its own destruction. So God used Samson's sinful desires and actions to save Israel. Samson wasn't seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, but God was. And I believe we gain great comfort from this. Not that it excuses our sin or makes sin good. We need to be clear. The fact that God works all things for good does not make all things good. This is not, oh, well, if God's going to use it for, for good, then I'm just going to go out and sin. Oh, if grace is going to abound, let sin abound. Paul says, no, 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 no. We've also learned in Judges, sin always has consequences, even when it is redeemed. It is not an excuse. But we are guarded from despair, knowing that our sin cannot thwart God's plan of salvation. For God's plan even took our sin into account. Sin was actually part of the plan. This is how good our God is. For just as God used the sin of Samson, his wife, and the Philistines to gain victory over the Philistines, God used the desires and actions of sinful men to save us from our sin. So as Peter preached concerning Jesus, he said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Definite plan of God, lawless desires and deeds of men. So never excuse sin, minimize sin, or think sin is good because God uses it. But also don't despair that your sin has ruined everything. For even your sin must serve your salvation. Because it must serve the God of your salvation. And I find this comforting not only for myself, but also as my children are slowly getting older. And I'm recognizing the day is going to come when I, I can't watch over everything my children do. They're going to become independent adults. I can give advice. I can give counsel. Say, this isn't a good idea, but I can't stop them from sinning and making mistakes. And so I pray that God's promises to me would be the same promises to my children. That they would be his children even more than they are my children. 
I can teach them, train them, counsel them, warn them. But ultimately, I must entrust them to God, who is their God. Knowing that even their sins and mistakes, he will work for their good, just as he has worked mine for my good. Samson's story of salvation began with an angelic announcement of a child. And then that child grew in the Lord's favor. God revealed his mission to Samson through the lion. Samson performed signs and wonders, but he wouldn't tell anyone about them. He speaks in riddles, which he only explains to the woman he loves. And so it's a matter of time before the rest of Israel knows what God is doing. In the same way, we know the story of Jesus begins with an angelic messenger coming to parents and telling them that a Savior will be born. That son grows in God's favor and learns his mission. He performs signs and wonders, but so often in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is telling them, don't tell what you have seen. He came preaching in parables, only revealing what they meant to those closest to him. But over time, God revealed to the world what he sent this son and savior to accomplish. And the good news for us is that we now live in the age of full light because the true light, not, not the little light, has come into the world. And this Jesus now sends his disciples into the world to be little lights, not to preach in parables or riddles, but to clearly and boldly proclaim the full truth of the gospel. We are to go and make disciples. We are to tell them what Jesus has done. For the mystery has been revealed. As Paul tells the Ephesians, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So praise be to God that there are no more secrets, no more riddles, the gospel is not reserved for a select few, but it is to be passed down to every man, woman, and child. The veil has been removed that all might see Jesus and enter into their salvation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have fully revealed yourself now in Jesus Christ. The light has been turned on and it is shining. But we know that the only way to see that light is to still trust in the work of your Holy Spirit. Only he can make the blind see and the deaf hear and the dumb speak and the lame leap and the dead live. So continue to do that within us. And through our faithful proclamation of the gospel, would you turn the light on in more and more hearts? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.